Hi, everyone. This is Stefan Partolo, and welcome to the Finding Sustainability podcast. Today, Michael and I are speaking with Fiona Noonan. Fiona is a professor of environment and development within the International Development Department at the University of Birmingham in the UK. Fiona's interests and experience focus on natural resource governance and management in developing country settings, particularly within inland fisheries and coastal locations in East and Southern Africa. And she also focuses on exploring the links between poverty and the environment. She was appointed to the head of the department in 2014 and was previously the director of postgraduate research. She leads on the new environment, sustainability, and politics pathway of the Master of Science program and works closely with colleagues in the political science and international studies department. Her first book was published in 2015 by Routledge, which was called Understanding Poverty and the Environment, Analytical Frameworks and Approaches. The book makes an innovative contribution to literature on environment and development by bringing together a diverse range of analytical approaches and frameworks which can be used to study human nature relationships. Her recent book, which we discuss in detail in the podcast, was published at the beginning of this year, 2020, by Routledge as well, and is titled Governing Renewable Natural Resources, Theories and Frameworks. Fiona, welcome to the podcast. I know you and I have been in exchange over this book that you've written uh, over the last year or so, which is now out uh, called Governing Renewable Resources, Theories and Frameworks. And I do want to get to that today, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the book. But I thought to start, you could give us a brief summary of your academic career and the different positions you've been in so far. Okay, great. Yes, thank you for the invitation to be part of this podcast. It's a great opportunity, particularly to talk about the book that I'm looking forward to. Um, But in terms of um, my academic career so far, well, it started off in uh, way back in 1994, um, a couple of, well, a few months actually after I finished my master's degree in environment development and policy, I was very fortunate to get a position at the University of Birmingham as a research assistant. Um, And that was without a PhD. So I'm sure that's something that wouldn't happen these days, um, would be much harder. But uh, the first research project I worked on was um, to do with environmental economics and was about valuing uh, the externalities of landfilling waste in Bangkok. So uh, once that finished, um, I was able to stay on in the department working on other research projects. And at the same time, I worked on my PhD, um, got my PhD in uh, 1998 and was offered a lectureship and stayed here at the International Development Department um, in the University of Birmingham until 2002. Um, Coming up to that time, I felt that um, I wanted longer term experience um, living in a working in a low income country. So I managed to get a job on a DFID funded project um, in Uganda called Integrated Lake Management. I worked as an institutional and social development advisor for a couple of years. And then after that, I got a job on an EU funded project um, on Lake Victoria, working with the Lake Victoria Fisheries Organization as a community development specialist. Finished. Um, I'd been in East Africa for about five years. Um, I thought I felt like I wanted to go back to academia. Fortunately, I'd managed to publish over that time. Otherwise, I don't think I'd have got back in. Um, and um, a one-year lectureship came up back at my old department. I hadn't meant to come back, but uh, it felt quite convenient at the time. It was a way to get back into academia and um, you know just see how I felt being back at Birmingham and it worked out really well and I ended up staying and became head of the department in 2014 uh, a position I just uh, gave up 
in January this year. So I was head of department for six years. Mm -hmm. how, how influential were those years abroad or outside of the UK for you in, in, in the books that you've written now? I know your first book was about the poverty and the environment. And mm -hmm. I, I was looking through your CV before this, you know, how, how influential were those first years of getting that developing? It seems like you have, you know, this outside developing country experience. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, actually, funnily enough, that first book that I wrote on understanding poverty and the environment, I had thought about writing before I went to Uganda. And it was already in my mind, even though I didn't write it till I came back. But and that really came about because I felt quite frustrated in terms of how very often sort of linkages between poverty and the environment were um uh, portrayed, you know, as, um, and particularly in, for example, our common future and, and some of the sort of policy initiative after that, that poverty inevitably leads to environmental degradation, which leads to further poverty. And I felt that that was it was just too simplistic and um, unhelpful and led to perhaps inappropriate policy responses. And I think my interest in governance then came partly out of um thinking more deeply about sort of poverty environment relationships, but also from my experience in um, East Africa, working in fisheries co-management. Uh, that was the first time I'd worked on fisheries co-management. I'd been much more involved in um, peri-urban uh, natural resource management before that. Um, and um, yeah, so I think that was, uh, that experience in Uganda was very influential on my realisation of just how important governance is, because governance is all about, you know, who is involved in making the decisions, why are those people making the decisions, who's left out, and what are the consequences of that? Yeah, I think the full title of your first book was Understanding Poverty and the Environment, Analytical Frameworks and Approaches, if I was correct. That's right, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I want to go on to the, of course, the other book, but it's, you know, what are some of the, the key messages which you've you've learned about this connection between poverty and the environment and, and environmental governance in general, which you think uh, have changed since since your experience? Well, that's a, a bit of a challenging question. I'm not so much sure so much about having changed, but more um, consistency, actually, in terms of how central power and politics are in um, these relationships. So the first book that I wrote took, I suppose, a slightly similar approach as the governance book, because it looked at different approaches to analysing poverty environment relationships. Well, actually, even human environment relationships. So social network analysis, um, political ecology, gender, livelihood analysis and governance frameworks. Um, so in that, I, I suppose I was trying to unpack the relationships, but there was a, this common thread uh, of a political ecology perspective, I suppose, and, a, and the centrality of power. And that, I think, it comes out um, again in, in the governance book, but actually I felt that um, power didn't come out as strongly as I thought it might do in the um, contributions from different people in the in the governance book. But I think I think over the years, I'd say I wouldn't say there's been so much change, but more that consistency of how central power is. And I think I think that power is often recognised, but it's very difficult to deal with. It's very difficult to know what to do about it and to, to talk to talk about openly uh, with people involved. So I think uh, we've still got a long way to go in working out what to do about 
the influence of power. Yeah, Michael, you want to add in there? Yeah, well, this is really interesting. I, I feel like I heard kind of a critique of a kind of just so story about poverty traps earlier. And I mean, one of the things that we've in the commons field, we've struggled with power quite a bit. We have this idea of communities being heterogeneous and there are property rights distributed, but we really struggle with how to measure it. So I was wondering you know, if you've thought about that at all in terms of because power is this kind of subtle, soft thing, right? So it's not always that someone's pushing someone else. It's like these these norms that get applied based on cultural context that as an outsider can be very difficult to be aware of. And in my own mind, I think a lot about how do we make measurements about systems in a way that produces comparable data, but how do you do that about power? Mm-hmm. Have you thought about that in terms of is, is power sh- something that we should be trying to measure quantitatively and comparatively? Mm. I have to admit, I haven't really thought about measuring it. Um, Mm. I'm not sure how useful that would be, really, Mm. um, in measuring it. I think it's more a question of not of recognizing where it where it's right. But I think what's more challenging is to um, to know how to talk about it to the people involved, you know, when they as well what the power dynamics are but it's not necessarily something you can talk openly about or challenge but I think you're right that it is difficult when you don't know a situation well to know what's sort of really going on and what all the power dynamics are but I think that's where um, some forms of institutional analysis can be quite helpful particularly you know they've got a couple of chapters in the governance book which we haven't really maybe come on to yet but it's uh, um, about uh, critical institutionalism and socially embedded institutions so sort of trying to um, take that kind of thinking into uh, looking at um, what are the um, social norms um, the uh, socially embedded institutions such as um, gender and kinship relations uh, the sort of norms of, of practice that will influence what people do, the decisions they make, um, and the outcomes of those. Yeah, this is so. In my graduate education, I got a, a fairly quantitatively oriented. Uh, I took a course in essentially quantitative research methods, but I never really took a qualitative equivalent. And sometimes I wonder. And, I mean, my own fieldwork, I struggle with a lot of these issues as 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 well. Like, how do you talk to people about power dynamics, about mm-hmm. power asymmetries? And it makes you think about your own position or positionality. Mm-hmm. But I never I never felt like I got trained in how to think about those things. I mean, are is this kind of just my ignorance? And there are there is a well-developed discourse um, for, say, qualitative researchers on how to, you know, I once had an anthropologist friend of mine talk to me about like the reflexive turn in anthropology where there was this realization that we should think about our own position in the systems that we're studying. Um, do you, do you, are, are there like methodological materials out there to help people think about this or should there be? Um, Well, I think if you're going to, um, if you're going to be particularly interested in power and in the socially embedded institutions, I think it does, it is suggested looking at the experience and including in the the governance book that an ethnographic approach is, is certainly more suitable. And I think it's not so much the sort of methods, but more the time it takes, you know, and time to really sort of try to get to know a situation um, and know people, but also to build up trust. But also, uh, I suppose, triangulation, you knowing that you've got to 
ask different people different things and in quite maybe indirect ways or look for proxies or indicators and uh, and know what's sort of culturally appropriate to ask as well. And um, sure. but of course, language can be quite a challenge there. And if you're using a translator, you know that can be uh, yeah very very difficult and very challenging. But I think so. I think what you have to do is not so much um, think about one appropriate method, but uh, perhaps several methods, and then. Um, interviewing and uh, undertaking different qualitative exercises whether it's focus group discussions or perhaps shadowing that's something that we used in uh, one of the research projects I've been involved with recently sort of shadowing government officers to sort of see them working in practice oh interesting um, yeah I think yeah that was very interesting that's something I'd like to sort of do more of but um yeah you've got to get obviously the right access and the right permission and and, and have time to do that but um so yeah, follow so them around right... with a notepad kind of thing. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah sort of regularly some ethical issues there, but that kind of thing, yeah. Okay. This is also something I was thinking about in the last couple of projects that I've been working on is this removing, or it seems to me that as we talk a little bit more about things like interdisciplinarity and, and cooperation with different stakeholders, for example, it, it's all about bringing in different perspectives and viewpoints. And I'm thinking a little bit about this sort of toolbox approach towards uh, the analysis of natural resource governance or environmental governance in general, where instead of having a more traditional education or perspective where you become a specialist in one particular theory, we kind of have a broad spectrum of different theories and frameworks, which then we have as a toolbox if we want to apply more diagnostically to a case, which might best help us understand that or to take two or three or four different theories, for example, and see how they can pull together an understanding of a case from a more holistic perspective. And it seems that both of your books, they have the subtitle of approaches and analytical frameworks or theories and frameworks. And it seems to me that, you know, that's something that you would also be interested in to, to kind of outline this toolbox approach in environmental governance that, you know, we can't, one theory or one framework is not going to be sufficient to understand a complex social ecological system or a com complex natural resource governance system. And I wonder from a methodological perspective, you know, where do you see yourself methodologically and do you think that kind of mixed methods approach is is the right way forward? It probably is, it could be the right way forward in, in some instances, but I probably see myself more as a qualitative uh, researcher and I probably, and I do tend more towards um, sort of political ecology or institutional analysis in particular mm -hmm. but um i think in those books yeah I, I know i very much wanted to bring together really different analytical frameworks and approaches because i felt like um you know people well a i thought it was a good way of um uh, providing resource to students and um younger researchers so they could see you know what's available there that there's um wealth of approaches that can be used to bring a much deeper analytical understanding of uh, relationships and then of governance in my second book mm -hmm. but um yeah I, I i'm sure you're i think i mean i feel like 
uh, as you're saying that the, um, I think if you're if you're focusing if your research is focusing on a particular theme or subject in our, in this case natural resource governance I think having an awareness or knowledge of different theories different approaches different frameworks is really important I think to so you are more informed you can bring together things in an innovative way perhaps or you know who you might want to collaborate with because some of the methods are quite difficult to use if you're not an expert in them and or you haven't got experience in using them so you might want to collaborate with others but at least if you know something about them you know who to talk to and um, who you might want to collaborate with but I yeah I mean I see your point that um, that uh, mixed methods certainly could bring you know something to this research if you're drawing on multiple approaches at once. Yeah what's your experience in political ecology are there different mm -hmm conceptual frameworks which are more explicitly linked with certain types of methodologies i think in more in the commons field um it's not so explicit i think there are certain conceptual frameworks out there but they're not necessarily linked to a specific methodological process or procedure which everyone then applies uh, which makes it a little bit you know difficult to to get to comparative analysis which mm -hmm. was is one of the key factors while we have these different conceptual frameworks What's your experience in political ecology? I'm not as familiar with that field. Okay. Well, I wouldn't, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say I was necessarily an expert either, though I do sort of tend towards that that end of things. But um, uh, I was. there's definitely no one conceptual framework. I'd say that political ecology is even harder to pin down than commons theory, really. It's uh, much more diverse um and, and I think it very much depends on because I very much come from an international development or development studies perspective uh whereas if you come at political ecology from a more critical sort of geography perspective they might have a slightly different lens again but it's I would say again it's very much informed by being concerned about power and recognizing uh, the sort of influence of power in relationships and in knowledge I suppose that there is that there are certain common threads, I would say, of um, political ecology around sort of where knowledge comes from, whose knowledge is it, and uh, which knowledges are uh, prioritised or preferred or accepted. Um, so there are there are certain common threads, but not a common conceptual framework. Uh, but in terms of methods, again, I would say that very much a preference for ethnography and uh, sort of taking time and uh, um triangulation of uh you know making sure that you that you have and, and really being a sort of challenging um accepted knowledge would be another common thread i would say of political ecology yeah with within the development international development academic space you could say i mean how how diverse is that space in your opinion is it a lot of political ecologists what are the other disciplines that are that are involved there oh it's it's very diverse hugely diverse um i'd say it's very much influenced by economists so a lot of economists um certainly a lot of political scientists as well uh my department for example uh, have quite a few of uh, uh, political scientists uh but otherwise um, anthropologists sociologists yeah, people are very sort of diverse backgrounds. So, um, yeah, it can be quite a challenging space to work in. But I think that many of us with a sort of development studies type of training would have a sort of a common objective towards uh, contributing to the sort of greater good and improved 
lives and in improved uh, well-being. Yeah, it seems like development would be one of those spaces that has an inherent interdisciplinary nature to it because it's focused yeah. around a common problem. Is that the impression that you get uh, with your colleagues and your faculty that the economists, political scientists, geographers, that uh, they generally understand each other's work, that they generally come from the same perspective? What is the, what's your impression of the, the interdisciplinarity of, of that space? I think it's a bit mixed, actually. I think there's some evidence of uh, there being that interdisciplinarity. But I think at the same time, that given that development studies or international development is more of a field of study and it's not a discipline, that people are still, to some extent, influenced by their disciplinary training and by the, you know, the desire to contribute in a scholarly sense and an academic sense within particular fields of study. So I think, or sorry, disciplines of study. So I think that can be a bit of a challenge. Um, but um, yeah, so I th I'd say the experience is mixed, really. You get some people who are very much um, sort of international development and uh, probably open more to interdisciplinary thinking and approaches, whereas some other people are, you know, very much influenced by their disciplinary training. Let's get into your book then, uh, Governing Renewable Resources, Theories and Frameworks, which was, I think, at the beginning of this year, so 2020, uh, out with mm. Routledge. And yeah, what is, I, that's right in my interest area for, for those who've listened to some of the podcasts and also with Michael, I think, big interest in that topic. Where do you see... Mm -hmm. You had mentioned that, you know, it's a great resource for students who, who want to get an overview of the field. And from an academic perspective, you know, where did you see the need to bring together a book like this, which which really outlines in good detail empirically with with good case studies as well, different different approaches out there? Well, I felt um, that there, there aren't that many texts or there aren't that many books that... Um, really focus on governance in a very direct way um, and that look at um, different natural resources as well. So very often you'll get books that are um, sort of focused on forest management or forest governance and uh, some books focused on only one particular form of governance, maybe it's community-based, for example, or um, books that are, are focused on particular approaches. So I felt that it would be good to bring together something that has a, a bit of a mix of uh, natural resource sectors as well as analytical approaches and different parts of the world. But I also wanted the book to be a bit different in being that the chapters are not purely case studies. They actually introduce, critically review and then apply a different body of theory or uh, literature and or frameworks. Um, so I thought that would be useful actually introducing approaches much in much more depth than um, edited volumes often do. And I also thought it would be important to have that concluding chapter that would look across the uh, contributions and see, you know, what can we learn from comparing the different approaches and uh, illustrating the different things that they can, or aspects or different questions that they can bring to analysis. What are some of the different theories and approaches that you that you go through in the book? Okay, so, um, right, well, I'll start off with an introduction because I felt it was important to sort of reflect on what governance is and uh, why the, the book focuses on renewable natural resources. And I sort of look at some of the sort of recurring themes as well, really sort of set the scene for the rest of the book. Uh, so the book has chapters on um, social network analysis, uh, looking at how um, that has been applied to analyse participatory governance. And then your own chapter on social ecological systems framework. Um, and then chapters on political ecology, several on institutions, uh, different sort of ways of analysing um, institutions. 
Um, and then an interesting chapter on polycentricity. Interesting in that I had kind of meant to get a chapter that was much more sort of mainstream polycentric governments, if you like. But the contribution from Shankaraswani um, actually applies polycentricity to customary sea tenure. So I, th I thought it was actually quite a, an interesting contribution um, there. And then there are uh, chapters on political ecology, uh, legal pluralism, and a great chapter by Mikkel Funder on um, the everyday practice of um, governance by local government officers. And, um, and I think that's a really interesting contribution. And then one chapter that looks more at policy instruments. So I thought that was quite a sort of different perspective in terms of thinking about um, how different governance arrangements pref may prefer different policy instruments or how they interact. Um, and then, as I say, I have a concluding chapter that tries to reflect on what's learned from the, um, the contributions to the book. It seems when, when you're going through the list there of the different different approaches, it seems institutional analysis is, mm. is one of those topics which you could weave through a lot of the chapters. Mm. And it seems that yourself and some of your previous work, as you mentioned before, is also focused on institutional analysis. And I think it'd be helpful for people to hear from you a little bit, like what, where do you see the state of institutional analysis? What is institutional analysis kind of in natural resource governance in general? Yeah. I mean, it's, why is it such an important feature of, of analyzing yeah. renewable resources or environmental governance in general? Yeah, I think that's a really important observation. And I think um, institutions are core and they are really just fundamental. Um, and I think they are actually just to our everyday lives, and that and that's why they're so fundamental to governance. Because you know they, they the rules of the game sort of influence how we interact with um, other people, with how we react to any circumstances. Um, so I think that um, you know you just can't avoid them in in um, natural resource governance because what we're ultimately talking about is. Um, uh, interactions between people or uh, relationships between people um, and I think that institutions are embedded in how we interact and I think in terms of um, how people approach institutional analysis we still very much have uh, what Frances Cleaver would distinguish between sort of mainstream institutionalism which she associates with common property theory and of course Eleanor Rostrom's work etc and then critical institutionalism, which um, she would argue that um, places much greater emphasis on institutions that emerge or evolve rather than are designed um, and that, you know, that alter over time as people um, change their behavior or circumstances change. So I, but I think it's I think it's important that we we keep that plurality of approaches to analysing um, institutions and perhaps try more to bring in perspectives from outside the area of, of commons and natural resource governance because there are many other approaches to analysing institutions, different terminologies used and I think that can be quite a, a challenging issue for us but still I think it's, it's good to bring in different perspectives, different lenses to analyse the same issue and see if it can bring in different insights. So I think institutional analysis will remain really important, but I think it's good to keep that plurality going. Yeah. OK, well, there's a lot here. How so we're talking about the use of different approaches to understand a common phenomenon, and that seems very healthy to me. And then 
to me, a, a big part of the subsequent challenge is how do you get folks to kind of learn across those boundaries? So traditionally, so I was trained to be kind of more of the first type of institutionalist thinking about institutions as rules of the game and then got it, you know, got exposed to people like Jack Knight and a bunch of folks that talk about how institutions are really about power and they are the expression of frequently power asymmetries. And there's been, I think, just uh, to a fair extent, a healthy back and forth about how much can we view institutions as being about solving problems and how much are they about, you know, people with interests kind of wanting to get what they want. And in my own mind, I feel like um, whenever there's this kind of like A versus B framing, and that's not exactly the space we're in, I feel like we can fall into a trap where a lot of the dialogue ends up being, well, it's either one or the other. And I think that's almost that's kind of like a psychological trap we fall into where it's like, well, if I was trained this way, then I kind of want to other this other thing. So I'm curious about what your experiences have been in getting these approaches, you know, to to talk to each other in a productive way. For example, these two kind of institutionalisms. Mm. It seems to me quite obvious. Well, you know, that institutions are play a key role in solving collective action problems, but also institutions reflect history and power dynamics. Mm -hmm. uh, how do we get those two perspectives to talk to each other and equally kind of the people that uh, are associated with those different perspectives to talk to each other? Have you Has that gone well in your mind or are there still kind of persistent challenges in learning across those approaches? I, I think um, I think there's still a long way to go is my impression. Um, you may okay. be a better place than, than me to know the answer to that, but from my um knowledge and, and interaction with, with maybe more mainstream thinking on institutions i think there is a long way to go uh, there's a nice uh, chapter in um, the book by claire barnes where she um starts with a more sort of traditional mainstream um, institutional analysis using the institutional analysis um framework mm -hmm. um and development framework but um and then brings in more of a critical perspective, having sort of found in her field work um, how important the sort of culturally, sort of socially embedded institutions were. Um, so I think um, I think you're right that um, they're not mutually exclusive and they can really enrich each other because I think in terms of um, sort of thinking about these sort of socially embedded um, institutional approach and critical institutionalism. I think even that can only go so far because I think it would be um, naive of us to think that there are never going to be efforts to try to improve the governance arrangements and try to design, if you like, institutions. But I think, you know, if you were to do that, knowing that you need to be aware of what's already there, that there isn't an institutional vacuum and that right. institutions will interact and so what you're you may be co-designing um, and and trying to introduce a new approach that that itself might change over time and it might look different between locations. I think if you can, you know, try to move towards more adaptive and flexible approaches, you know, that might be a way that we can learn, you know, much more from each other and accept the limitations in um, sort of either approach. Yeah. It would be nice to, I mean, this is something that Stefan and I have thought about for a while, to um, share resources and, and pedagogical resources to help people be exposed to these different approaches. Because it's very easy to kind of spend 30 seconds thinking about something 
and then problematize it and then kind of dismiss it. So it's like, well, that approach can only go so far, so I'm not going to really pay all that much attention to it. And your brain has kind of done that before you've even really paid very much attention to it. So I think it'd be it'd be nice to even like, I don't know if there is, right, a, a course on mixed approach, mixed approaches to institutional analysis, right? So it's from blueprints to to post something. I don't know how to call yeah. it, right? That sounds excellent, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would take it. I mean, yeah. I think we're all excited by it anyway. Yeah. Uh, no, I like that idea. Yeah, and I'm not. Um, I'm not aware of one. Yeah, I mean, I'm not either. Maybe maybe I'm a listener can let us know. Yeah, right. <laughs> I think it would be useful to to maybe hear a bit about the concluding chapter, mm-hmm. and that might bring out some more of the commonalities that we can then get into some of the details on. You know, when you reflected yeah. back on the book and you worked on it for quite a while, getting the chapters together and trying to find how they link. What 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 else was was the common threads there for you and and some of the key themes that came out of the book? Well, um, we've already talked about one, and that is obviously institutions, because I think it does it does come out really strongly. But I did um, you know reflect in the concluding chapter that I can't you know that I wouldn't like to conclude that you know that uh, necessarily the institutional analysis is the only way forward or is the um, only perspective because it may reflect you know the contributions that I was able to secure. So I wasn't able to um, get any contributions that took a more quantitative approach, for example. So, you know, there are other ways of analysing governance. You know, the book isn't comprehensive, it doesn't cover everything. So I wouldn't want to sort of um, give that impression. Um, So what I um, tried to do then was uh, reflect on what the different sort of chapters had um, focused on. And I don't think there were any sort of obvious um, themes or differences there but uh, just a reflection that um, I suppose that a lot of the analysis was more concerned with the process of governance and the performance of governance than perhaps the outcome and I think that's something I have found um, in other work that I've done um, in particular when it comes to ecological outcomes um, and looking at sort of the effect of governance on those I always think that there could be much more on that in terms of uh, methodology, again, um, given that uh, there were largely qualitative um, chapters, um, ethnography and those sorts of uh, sort of methods within that sort of framework um, were, were largely referred to in the research design in the chapters. And then what I did in the concluding chapter was tr- sort of cluster some key themes around the multiplicity and diversity of institutions. Um, recognizing that there are often many actors um, and many institutions uh, involved in any situation and then I looked at um, some of the interactions then uh, between institutions because um, of course institutions don't operate in isolation they interact with each other um, and that can then form as um, one of the terms used uh, in the in the book institutional bricolage it will change what institutions look like because of that interaction and then um another theme was sort of governance in practice then what does um uh governance look like in in practice and how is it sort of dominated by certain discourses and influenced by certain discourses um so i think those were some of the sort of recurring themes um sort of looking at the sort of uh, say the the process of governance more um whether that's the sort of process in terms of how it's working in practice or how it comes about 
but then I sort of conclude, well, what can I, what could I sort of learn from all, all of that? And then perhaps um, quite predictably, I sort of um, concluded then um, that inevitably any natural resource governance situation is complicated because you haven't got just one form of governance going on it's situated within other governance arrangements whether that's you know to do with local government or with other areas of natural resource management or um, the political system itself and then uh, that um, really what we need to, to move towards as I've suggested already is a much more adaptive uh, and flexible system which hopefully might enable um, governance to be more inclusive too because that was a common theme you know we've talked about power um, today and as a result of the influence of power it can be very difficult to create uh, governance systems that are truly inclusive and remain inclusive over time and that's particularly re uh, relevant for women in many of the parts of the world that I work in it's very difficult to create spaces where women are able to um, or permitted to or have the feel comfortable in uh, being involved in these natural resource governance arrangements mm. there's a couple of things in there one one which came to my mind first was this difference between this focus on on outcomes more versus mm. processes mm. and sometimes when I'm, I'm reading papers it says this was the outcome or I, I, I find myself writing this was the outcome of, of the case i, I just thinking this is kind of crazy there's never a fixed outcome there's always oh, there's always things over time that are changing and as soon the day that I left that field site something changed and the next day and the next week and the next month and I wonder if the framing of outcomes and resource governance is a bit too much of a an obsession on this fixed thing which is never really actually fixed it's always an evolving process and we don't give too much attention on the changing or like the pulsing nature of of these institutional changes and I wonder if you had any further reflections on that. I think that's um, really interesting actually and I think, think you could be right actually but though I think it would be quite a challenge to really change everyone's sort of mindset to sort of rethink how we think about outcomes or whether we should be thinking about outcomes at all and particularly when you know I'm, I'm working with the, uh, within international development when our concern is, you know, about poverty alleviation and improving livelihoods. And if you're not delivering on that, you know, then I suppose the the question is, should we be doing something else then? You know, should there be a different arrangement? And is this the best arrangement? So I think what you're suggesting, Stefan, is really interesting because, you know, perhaps we are asking the wrong questions and being too worried about getting the right institutional arrangements or the right governance arrangements to deliver on certain types of outcomes. Whereas in reality, in many of the natural resource situations we're talking about, you have to have some kind of arrangements. And very often you have to have at least some of the users involved because, you know, to build a sense of ownership to, uh, because government can't be everywhere, they don't have the um, necessarily the resources or the staff. So, you have to have some kind of governance arrangement if that's what you think you do need to have to if you think a system needs to be managed. But um, perhaps that obsession with, you know, what governance arrangement is going to lead to, lead to these outcomes is um, perhaps an unhealthy obsession. Perhaps, yeah, I think we need to give that some more thought. Yeah, I was wondering if that's part of adaptive governance, if you want to say uh, from a formal perspective or just adaptive yeah. governance in general, it's that it's not a fixed thing. We have to the institutions have to evolve according to where it takes us. And then that's not dependent. We're not trying to get to a particular place. We're just trying to adapt to what's happening in a way which meets the needs of 
of the mm. people who are, who are building those institutions or whatever their normative goals are for those those institutional processes. And do you see that? I, th I think I think partly maybe, but not fully, because there will always be a desire. I mean, particularly given, let's say, in, in, in international development where you've got donors very often funding these natural resource governance projects and programs, you know, they want to know that lives are being improved, that the um, natural resource system is improving, uh, there's uh, less degradation, the fish stocks are recovering, there's a better, healthier ecosystem. So I don't know that it would be possible to not talk about outcomes, but I think that idea that uh, that what you're suggesting is that for greater recognition, the outcomes aren't something that you just achieve and then move on, but there's something that evolves and it's a bit of a moving um, target, if you like, I think is really important. But I think it's very, very challenging. In fact, actually, um, for a report I wrote a few years ago for DFID on natural resource governance, I found it very difficult to find uh, real examples of adaptive governance in practice in uh, in low-income countries so i think we're some way to go before really realizing what that might look like what they might look like um, in practice yeah i think that's that's more well said than than i had had phrased mm -hmm. it. Uh, it i think one part of it I, it was just getting away from a more binary aspect of, yes. of how we measure the outcomes and some more maybe a more pluralistic or more full spectrum on, on outcomes michael do you want to add something yeah well i feel like i heard this a bit and what fiona just said is um that maybe we're not talking about dropping the discourse about outcomes, but that this other discourse about adaptability changes what we think our focus on what which outcomes we should be caring about is. Mm -hmm. So it's less about um, mm -hmm. a certain amount of, you know, the, the, the straw men that are easy to throw out there, right? Like certain amount of GDP, economic growth, yada, yada, versus are the precursors for adaptability there, given that we can't predict what's going to happen later. Um, I mean, this is something I've thought of, I think is an issue in the discourse about adaptability generally is that it starts, you know, there's a lot of kind of conceptual language about, well, we need to keep on adapting. And so we can't have as much blueprint approaches to things. But in a way, there's still a universality implied by this discourse that's trying to chuck this other version of universality. It's saying that we can't focus on fixed arrangements, but we're still all it's still claiming that all of us need to worry about adaptability. So there's still this claim that we, we all of us need to have a certain type of approach. It's just that it's a different type of approach that's been put forward so far. I mean, is that, does that make sense to you all that it's there's in this kind of language about diagnosis, I feel like we've had something similar where people say, well, there's no, we, we need to back off on the overgeneralizing about cases. But of course that itself is a, is a claim to generalizability that each case is unique and that, uniqueness is universal. So I feel like we can't get away from the need to talk about generalizing and trying to apply similar approaches across cases. And to me, it's, it's always felt like we need to change how we're doing that. So we need to worry about adaptability and uncertainty everywhere because everywhere is different. But that's still like a claim about universality in a way. It's that there's uncertainty everywhere because everywhere is different. Mm. But because everyone's different, there's this like common principle that we would apply. Okay, um, maybe I could just pick up one of it, the points you you said there, Michael, at the beginning. And I think um, thinking about which outcomes, and maybe you know that that sure. interest in uh, um, adaptability makes you rethink, you know, which outcomes are. And I think maybe it's uh, worth us thinking a bit more than about um, capacity. 
because obviously sort of thinking about um, taking a more adaptive approach to governance, it should lend us to think much more about strengthening capacity, as a thick book Burkas would say, uh, rather than being fixed on the outcomes and, and the structures. So, um, and I think we've still been fairly fixed on structures, if you like. So, and I think, um, you know, perhaps hmm. giving more thought to what that means to um, have, generate and build capacity to be more resilient, more adaptive, uh, more able to deal with uncertainty, or what that means for decision making. I think that's a perhaps a real sort of challenge for us going forward. Sure, yeah. I mean, but it seems like a worthy challenge to try to meet. Yeah, absolutely. Did you get the impression, Michael, it made me think when you mentioned it was about diagnostic approaches and diagnostic types of tools that we use as academics to try to understand cases. Do you get the impression that I mean, certainly uh, on Ostrom's work, she was pushing for having the SES framework as a type of diagnostic tool. And I've seen that now in a couple of other frameworks as well. And I'm wondering what's the what's kind of the downside of those? What is the what's the trade off there in having a diagnostic approach? Is it are we losing something there? What is did you get the impression when you're when you're looking at these different chapters, which use different tools that there is this diagnostic capacity? Uh, in them for understanding institutional analysis? I mean, I think there's always the challenge of tunnel vision that, you know, Lynn's approach was very much couched. If you, you know, if you know the history of the workshop, there's not, what is in the essays framework is not a radical departure from the scholarship that you can see at the workshop in the previous 20 years, including in the IID framework, et cetera. So there's very much a collective action, community-oriented focus. You know, the first version of it didn't have actors. It called them, I think, like resource users because um, that's really had been the focus of the scholarship. And so, of course, you know, similarly to models, frameworks are useful because they're wrong, right? They're, they, they miss stuff, but in missing stuff, they get other stuff. And this gets back to the importance of, you know, having a plurality of frameworks that you can avail yourself of to you kind of get around your own tunnel vision in a way. I think the challenge there is that suddenly, you know, we have so many frameworks and I don't know what to do actually with like the, all the frameworks that we have, you know, we have a discourse about theories that we're supposed to be kind of winnowing them. You know, it's just kind of pseudo evolutionary logic about science that we're supposed to be kind of testing theories and trying to falsify them, et cetera. At least that's what like some philosophers of science say. I don't know what we're supposed to be doing with frameworks. We're, we're supposed to be kind of using them, some of them diagnostically, but are we supposed to kind of be generating more and more frameworks? Are we supposed to be generating them so that we can over time select the ones we really like? This is not, I'm not getting into the idea of diagnosis, but I do think at least in the commons and some of the social ecological systems communities, we don't really know what we should do with all of the frameworks that we have. Um, and I think that's a challenge and for just like scientific and scholarly progress over the long run is we, we should try to answer that question. Uh, whether the frameworks are couched in terms of diagnosis or not. Yeah, I mean, I was listening back to the podcast you did with Mark LaBelle, and I mean, he was saying with the SES framework, one criticism is that you keep, for example, adding and adding to it, and then the, the number of variables in the, in the framework approaches the complexity of the problem itself. And, you know, when the value of having these analytical tools is that to some extent they're reductionistic. They try to tell us what to focus on, depending on our research questions. And Right. I mean, you could have a diagnostic approach to, I mean, people have talked about this, that you have like a family, just like you have like families of theories. Maybe what we need is, you know, there was a paper out that compared, I think in like 2013, that compared all the different frameworks, you know, but we don't have a lot of guidance in how to choose frameworks. Mm -hmm. 
um, you know, which one is more appropriate for what types of research questions. I mean, that's where my brain goes when I when I think about what su uh, support would be helpful. I mean, there wasn't there's minimal guidance and support um, written for the SES framework, at least historically. And so you've ended up with very idiosyncratic, you know, you've you found this, Stefan, right? That there's very idiosyncratic implementations of this framework, yeah. which my own opinion is that that starts to defeat the point of the framework. And there's, that's, there's differing opinions about that. But um, I think we need to think about when we draw these boxes and arrows, what do we think we want to do with them? Like, how do they help us do what we think we want to do, which is generally to answer questions of some kind, whether or not you call yourself a scientist or a humanist or what have you. I think one challenge is it's not necessarily obvious the set of problems that each of the framework can address. So I'll see you see a new framework or even with the SES framework, it's, you know, what type of research can I do with this particular framework? And that's kind of ambiguous. And I think you have to do a lot of reading and seeing where that comes from, from the scholars who developed that and see what the previous applications of those frameworks have been. And I was wondering what your impression was of the book that, you know, these different sets of tools, is it from maybe a student's or a young scholar's perspective who are, who are just learning them? Do you, or both of you, do you get the impression that it's it's obvious the different types of tools that we have and how those tools can be used or do we just have a toolbox and, we, and we're not sure exactly what we can do with all the tools that we have no i don't think it's obvious at all actually but I, and i think you're right i think that um that you need to know what how those frameworks were developed what the assumptions were behind them um what the thinking was what the rationale the assumptions behind those those um, arrows, those relationships. So it's quite a complex task. And I think that's what the book is trying to do, actually, is at least introduce um, the different approaches that are available. And then hopefully, you know, people um, do think that might be an appropriate um, approach. They'd go and look for, looking for other resources. But as you're saying, you know, for example, with the social ecological systems framework, you know, there isn't a sort of a, a book to go to on terms of, how to use it and how to definitively apply it. And I know there have been efforts to try to um, generate databases so that where people can um, explain how which variables they've used, how they've defined them. Because of course, you know, you look at any of the variables in that framework and it immediately raises lots of questions, you know, who is an actor, you know, how are you counting them and all sorts of sort of questions. And I've sometimes um, with those variables, you know, I've gone back and tried to through Eleanor's writing and trying to work out how she's defined um, even something simple like an actor or a resource user. So, you know, the, unfortunately, all of these things are, are, are really complicated and uh, it's very difficult to um, provide simple guidance and simple solutions. But and I think there will always be a, a plethora of frameworks because we all have different ways of approaching things and understanding things in empirical situations are so different. And we'll always mm -hmm. want to tweak things a bit as well. So one important point I made at the begin at the end of my first book was that to warn readers that these frameworks are not cast in stone, that they will change, they will be changed and adapted and modified. Um, and uh, they need to perhaps be willing to do that as well. And I think, and sometimes I have found as well that, um, What's particularly difficult, I think, for um, younger scholars, perhaps, and coming into this area, is sometimes um, frameworks are applied in only a partial way. And I think that's particularly true of the IAD framework, that you, it's hard to find like, sort of examples where the whole framework is used and people aren't just focusing on one part of it. Or um, So I think that's a bit of a challenge as well. So some really good resources on, on, on um, 
comprehensive applications, if you like, would be uh, perhaps a, a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd like to get your impression on, you know, what what is next? What do you see as the the bigger gaps in, in the field of either environmental resource governance or in poverty in the environment? The t- two major topics we talked about and in your books, what's maybe either the next book coming up or what are the things which you're thinking about, which really interest you uh, in, in this field? Okay, well, um, in the last sort of couple of years, what I've been moving more towards is um, building a network of uh, researchers in sub-Saharan Africa, not just researchers, actually, but other stakeholders as well. So we've um, I've got some um, government officers and NGOs in this um, network as well. We're trying to get funding at the moment. I'm just waiting for a result of a funding application. But the focus is going to be on how to build these more sustainable solutions to natural resource governance. Uh, so in many of the um, situations that uh, the members of this uh, uh, network are working in, uh, you know, whether it's uh, beach management units on Lake Victoria, beach village uh, committees or councils in um, Malawi or um, conservancies in, in Kenya or the creamers in Ghana, the community resource management associations, um, you know, it's difficult to keep them going over time, uh, particularly where they've been supported by donor funding or by a particular government initiative. So that's sort of one issue. But the, the other issue is that um, this multiplicity of governance arrangements within any situation and the links between them. So very often the types of areas that I look at um the natural resource governance solutions are driven by different ministries. So you've got fisheries driving fisheries and forestry driving forestry. So you'll end up with multiple committees, user groups in any one location sometimes. So what I want to try to look at is, you know, what could, how could we develop, co-develop with practitioners, with communities, some sol- solutions, if you like, that from everything that we know, we do know a lot, but unfortunately, what we do know are an awful lot of negative lessons, if you like, what doesn't work well and um, things that we need to try to avoid. You know, how do you avoid elite capture and how, what do you do about these power relations? And how can you get women more involved? And um, So I think we, we try, need to be a bit more practical, I think, in a way, but you know, how can you develop um, solutions that make sense locally, um, that build on existing institutions, but at the same time, you know, have a degree of fairness um, and hopefully inclusivity. So that's something I want to, to work towards. Um, and, and I will certainly try to take on board in that research as it's going forward, um, the need for governance solutions to be more adaptive um, and more flexible. So that's what I'm, I'm hoping to work on in the next few years. Great. I love that. Less, less negative lessons, more positive lessons. I, I yes. totally agree. So you, yeah. you'd, you'd fund it then, I hope, this funding application I've got. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I mean, Michael and I have, of course, interested in, in developing this network idea and in connecting people. And I think there's in this idea that there's a lot of people out there with information. They're just not connected to each other in the sharing. Yeah. And what are some of the ways that you will more practically build that network? Is it going to be more of a like a soft connections of networks uh, of people online and, and, or is it going to be more of hard connections, getting people together and having meetings? Um, is it going to, what's the kind of practice versus research side of, of the ambition there? Uh, well, I mean, at the moment it's uh, more sort of um, face-to-face working together, building relationships. And I say it's particularly um, working in several uh, countries in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, but, 
Yeah, I mean, uh, providing we can we get the funding and get going, uh, because what we've done so far is use internal university funding to sort of bring us together and we'll work on proposals. Um, but obviously network with, uh, make connections with other initiatives, because there are other sort of similar research projects going on, um, other sort of initiatives um, that maybe sort of haven't taken off. I'm not quite sure what's going on with the IUCN's um, natural resource governance framework at the moment, but that would be an obvious sort of connection to make. So there certainly are connections, but I think it's having the sort of time and the... Um, the sort of resources behind you in order to mobilise that. And I think the challenge will be as well for this project is that what I want to do, as I say, is work across natural resource sectors. So learn much more from forestry to fisheries to wildlife management, rather than just working within one sectoral perspective. And, um, and I think that's quite a challenge as well, because very often people just focus on one resource and um, only become familiar with people working in that same resource and so think that way and uh, so it's quite a challenge actually trying to sort of cut across as well. Absolutely I, I think that's such a challenge to me right you've got the fishery people you got the forestry people and you've got you know the groundwater people and I think we kind of forget that in each of those systems there are people mm. right and so there's this assumption that everything else must just be very different. I suppose also it's just, it's um, costly to try to do any one thing. So to try to organize with other people who are looking at our sector, but I've, I've been working in, for, in farming and fishing for a little while now. And I've loved just like, oh, my brain just makes these connections between mm -hmm. like, oh, these fishers have this problem. That looks like a similar but different version to the problem that the farmers are facing with like these semi-predatory intermediaries. Mm -hmm. And until you do that, you kind of don't know what you don't know comparatively mm, yeah and I think you're also potentially missing opportunities to really learn lessons from each other and pick up you know some good practice from elsewhere and really sort of cross fertilize so I'm really hoping that through this network and I can sort of facilitate much more collaboration and, and lesson learning between sectors within these countries as well sounds terrific Michael do you have any final questions well I have hours worth of questions kind of in my mind but i know that we're kind of running up on time so i mean this has been this has been really terrific i mean i'm the idea of of positive lessons i think is is still sticking with me i think in in terms of research and in teaching i think that's a challenge i'm an environmental studies department and you know we have no shortage of kind of uh failure cases right to kind of teach our students but i think it's harder to find a lesson where it's like oh and here's here's something where it went well, here's a turning point that these people in this particular place took. I know maybe that's because there are more cases of failures and successes, but I also wonder whether there's also some kind of bias in terms of our own selection processes. I don't really know, but I, I, I strongly agree that we need kind of a mix of positivity mm. in research and teaching. Yeah. Yeah. Fiona, do you have any other Anything you want to share with us or any projects or places you want to direct listeners to? Well, uh, obviously to the book. If they haven't got a copy of that already, I hope that we've uh, persuaded them that they should uh, make a purchase quickly of uh, governing renewable natural resources. Um, and I think um, I would just maybe say that, you know, it'd be great to hear from people who are interested in anything that we've said or um, interested in collaborating on the type of research I've talked about. Or, you know, perhaps practitioners as well who think that the work that they're doing would fit in well with the research that I'm proposing. So I would really love to hear from people. So please do get in touch and to please do help me with my networking. Yeah, we will. We'll, uh, we'll link to the book in the show notes and some other things that were, were mentioned. I think both your books so people can find them easy. And thanks so much great. for your time. I really appreciate it. That was fun. Yeah, great. Thank you very much, both of you. 
thank you for listening to the podcast. You can find more information about all of our guests in the show notes for each episode. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, where you can share and further engage with the content, as well as give us your recommendations for future guests. You can listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play, and it can also be streamed from our website. This podcast is part of a larger project called the Environmental Social Science Network, www.essnetwork.net. On the website, you can become a member and use all of the resources provided for free. This includes webinar videos, a blog, knowledge base, and using the website as a platform for your own projects. We appreciate your support.